don't we wish? <laughs> don't we just wish? Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, a podcast where I, Talon Lee, he, him, and I, Fox Lee, she, her, go through the entire plotting corpus of the Disney Animated Canon, as determined by, I don't know, the Druids, I think. As determined by corporations declaring what they want their image to be. I mean, I, yeah. Which is even less worthy of respect than normal canon, but... Canon is a cop. If it were me, I would have declared it to not include the Winnie the Pooh movie. Speaking of the Winnie the Pooh movie from 1977, this is the other movie they released in 1977. The Rescuers. Well, no, I'm sure releasing two movies in one year in no way compromised the quality of either. You're going to find out some stories on that. Like, buckle up, we're going to see some shit. <laughs> oh, that's so much to promise early on. Uh-huh. But before we can get going on the whole of this wonderful arrangement, we have to start with the plot in 60 seconds. And it's not my turn. And this one actually has a plot. Oh, so, it's plot time. Okay. Yep. Okay, do you want a moment to take a break? Take a breather? Ready? Good. I think I got this. Alright then, your time starts now. There is a secret society of mice who help people who are in trouble. They receive an SOS message from a little girl who's been trapped by villains in a swamp. The mission is volunteered for by an everyday scruffy mouse who's supposed to actually be the janitor, and a sexy French mouse, the one you're supposed to want to fuck. After a precursory investigation, they learn that the child ran away and was subsequently kidnapped by a pair of jewel-thieving crooks who are trying to get her to retrieve a giant diamond from a smuggler's cave. They go, they find out the situation, they help the child recover the diamond because that's the only opportunity for escape, and then they escape. Yeah. And uh, I, I get to clock off early. You really do, 15 seconds early. Hey! And this isn't fucking around. That was really everything in this movie. And this, and this isn't a, like you, this isn't like when I when I cover the Winnie the Pooh with nothing happens. This is a genuinely plotted movie. There is a narrative. Things happen in a sequence that relates to one another. Yeah, yeah. There is a theme. There's central messages. Well, I guess so. Yeah. After after a couple of movies of you know movie substitute. I'm quite happy to get this level of uh, engageable text. <laughs> it's true, it's true. No, I did leave out all of the action, really. Um, yeah. But, you know, describing the action blow by blow is not really part of the plot, so I'm no. fine with leaving that out. No, I absolutely. guess I could have mentioned their alliance with the local hick rodents <laughs> and an owl for some reason. Pay attention, owls are uh, friends. Bats are monstrous. All right, well, next up, your relationship to the text. I'm going to just completely skip over this one because I have nothing. Nothing. I, though, okay, no, okay, I have a tiny, tiny tidbit, which is our church were told not to let kids to watch this because Bernard is superstitious about the number 13, <laughs> which indicates a degree of Satanism. I see, okay, yes. So, nothing. Noted Satanist Bernard. Yeah. What about you, Fox? What's your relationship to this movie? Well, I was sure I had seen this all the way through at least once, but there are bits of this that I do not remember, and I'm fucking sure I would have remembered them if I'd seen this. The, uh, the, the Pyborgan duel? Yeah! That was so cool! Yeah. Really, really funny. Really good use of a minimal, like, minimal kind of sets for an animator. Yeah, so I... I don't know if I was misremembering. I swear I, I saw this 
when I was in my 20s as like a, well, I never did watch that one back in the day. Uh, but I did know the basic plot outline pretty well because this is another one that we had the, like, golden book storybook of. It wasn't a golden book, but there was a particular set of Disney-branded books where they did, you know, one per canon movie, basically. Yeah, makes sense. This is also where we had the, the Winnie the Pooh one and Cinderella and a bunch of other ones. Right here? Um... Anyway, they left a lot of stuff out of that, though. Specifically, the romance, and the action, and anything about a pipe organ duel. Yeah. <laughs> but, with that done, even though it was only a couple of years ago, uh, do you have a double take? Well, I do. Most of these relate to the storybook version, so, uh... Let's start with, uh, the flag. Yeah. I heard this fable at some point i'm sure but i never connected the the whole story of the lion with the thorn in its paw to the image on that flag which they straight point out and you know it's not subtle no but it flew entirely over my head in any previous version of this some things are just really different between the the storybook version and the movie like the cat having really kind of a huge part in the early movie like yeah. His, aside from some, like, vague shenanigans where getting into the zoo is a possible shortcut, but it's dangerous, the the uh, cat's relationship with the child gets more attention than our main character's relationships with each other at that point. Like, yeah. I feel like they put more effort into making us like the cat than to either Bernard or Bianca. Yeah, and the, the cat is a important voice. Yeah, well, especially since he imparts what is apparently the moral of this film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to just have faith and everything will work out. Thanks, cat. A thing that nobody in this movie does. No. They, they're kind of proactive. We'll, we'll talk more about that later, I think. Uh, another thing they left out. Pretty much all the romance. Yeah. Like, I knew that these two were supposed to be an item. Because, like, they kiss at the very end. And more importantly, I've seen Rescuers Down Under. So I know that they're a thing. But... Uh, there's tons of it in this movie as well. They actually have quite a decent amount of time to warm up to each other and shared near-death experiences and what appears to be just a hell of a long plane ride. Mm. Um, it's, th there's way more there than I ever thought there was. The storybook was like, literally, they leave New York on the bird. Next page, they arrive. There's nothing to put in between there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that was a thing. Literary references I didn't get at the time. The alligators are named Nero and Brutus. Hey! <laughs> That's a nice touch. Yep. Eight-year-old Fox definitely didn't know what that was about. Why is Medusa so, uh, theatrically high-minded in naming her thugs, though? What What's especially wild, and this is barely worth noting for later on, but the alligators are based on uh, a characters from a book, and the book characters' names were Tyrant and Torment. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that's less literary reference points, but definitely more terror points. Yes, yeah, good villain names. <laughs> also, also, not lost on me now that they do try and eat her at the end. Yeah, yeah, straight <laughs> up. That's cute. <laughs> that's a reference. Uh, so, double take subversion. I got the even rude joke right from the start. Really? Because we lived on the lake. Hey! So my dad had a motorboat. Right, right. Well, would you like to explain it for the audience? Oh, right. Uh, at one point, our, uh, our heroes need transportation through the swamp from the friendly locals, and they suggest Evenrude, who runs the fastest boat in these parts. 
He is a dragonfly who powers a boat in an extremely outboard motored fashion. Yeah. This is also the brand name of a very widely spread outboard motor. So widely spread, Uh, we have it here. Yeah. That's, I, it's even more surprising that this got through to me because normally brand name stuff especially is like, well, that's hilarious for you if you're an American from the 80s. <laughs> uh, my next double take is the entirety of the pipe organ scene. <laughs> How good is that bit? <laughs> In summary, when our heroes first break into the villain's lair, which is a wrecked riverboat, which is fucking rad... What a great set piece if you're going to do a thing set in the bayou. Beautiful, beautiful thing. I adore it. Uh, And that's the perfect excuse for it to have a big-ass rusty old pipe organ in it. Which our alligator henchmen, (laughs) upon noticing our, our mouse heroes, proceed to chase them into... And then play with significant skill trying to get them back out. (laughs) This is such a good sequence. This is a shot of an alligator pressing a (laughs) button, pressing a key with a thoughtful look on its incredibly stupid face. It's so good. So good. I love it. I now love this movie, and I feel like if I had seen that, I would have adored it. Uh, I don't know how I managed to miss it. From hilarious to scariest. The, the other thing they significantly left out of the storybook is the horrifying whirlpool oh, yo, down yo, in the smuggler's yeah, cave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Like, it fills up with water. The ticking clock is there for that scene. But there's no gaping blowhole uh, from which water gushes and then sucks back down into mm. and really actively tries to kill our heroes. Mm. I'm impressed. A tidal blowhole. Just the scariest thing to be near as a kid. Yeah, and like very relatable to to uh, me. Uh, like I said, my parents lived on the lake. I am a coastal child. I have met several blowholes in my time and I would not go near them. Yeah. I have met several tide caves in my time. And I would not go near them. No. No. That's how you die. Uh, and, and you know, just also in, in the book, she just sees the diamond sitting in the skull. She hasn't noticed it before. It's like Bernard's like, oh, is it down this corner instead of where you've been looking previously? Yes, it is. Oh, hooray. Let's get it and run out. Huh. There was a lot more tension in the movie. Mm. To their credit. Yeah. Much more interesting. Yep. I, I especially love that the diamond is clearly too big to have gotten in there through an eye socket, which means it went in through the mouth. There is another possibility, which is to say that that person was a skull and the diamond got shoved in to the cavity. But yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I like to imagine it's someone who, who you know, in their dying moments went, Ah, you can't have this. You will at least have to wait for me to rot. <laughs> Come on, it's pirates. They can do stuff like that. Sure. Anyway, that's all I got. Radio. But, uh, wowie, my impression of this movie has changed significantly based on all of that. Indeed, this indeed. This was pretty cool once it finally got going. Mmm. But being a pretty cool movie doesn't mean that it's immune to the problems that lie beyond the yikes door. Yeah. Surprisingly good or not, it is still surely of its time. Mm-hmm. And I have some stuff from it's of its time that is not good or bad. It's just there. I had at least one of those too. Like, it's not, it's not like, <laughs> but you would still never see it nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, 
just some of the stuff there is that, like, the list of countries that are actually represented. <laughs> you would notice that when I wouldn't, wouldn't you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I see how that would go. Was the, did you catch, like, a Yugoslavia or something? Well, here's the thing. This is 1977. She's the representative from Hungary. Ah. Hungary's part of the USSR at this point. But I can see why America wouldn't make a point of recognizing that. Yes. And also, a pleasant little complication is that Hungary traded with the West. That was a thing. It was the special state that Hungary got to have as this perimeter part of the USSR. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, at this, at this point, Americans going, oh, no, Hungary's not really part of the USSR was an actual source of political tension yeah. between the Soviet Union and a satellite state that was essentially trying to be in both camps. So it's like light shades of propaganda to this movie. A little bit. But in the least yikesy way possible, really. Like, yeah. How fascinating. Um, similarly, the countries that get recognised... So, like, in the opening, you see a bunch of mice that are clearly wearing foreign costumes. You do, you do. And I just want to, you know, since we're on the subject... I want to note astonishingly non-yikesy use of humans in that scene as well. Like, we see a lot of humans going in and out of the United Nations building. Yeah. A lot of whom are in racially identifiable costumes. But as far as I can tell, none that are just straight stereotypes. Like, I have seen people these days dressed in those costumes. At the UN? delegates at the UN, yeah. They seem to be more or less accurate. Uh, there, there is a purpose to this kind of costuming at the UN. It's, it's, it's a thing they do. And... That's the thing I was going to bring up with the mice. In that the mice are wearing what would be, you know, funny ethnic costumes normally, but there are a lot of them and they represent a whole wide variety of different cultures. I was not expecting to get a fairly accurate examples of both an Austrian and a Netherlands outfit. I wasn't expecting Syria to be represented. No. I wasn't expecting um, Ireland to be represented. It's 1977. The Troubles is happening. And Ireland is represented as an equal representative in the purpose of, hey, we want to make the world better. There was no, let's just not talk about Ireland. Well, yeah, okay. I was going to say, however fraught those times are, uh, America has always been firmly, for better or worse, on the side of Ireland. Yes. in, uh, In the Troubles. Yes. And yet now is weirdly monarchist. Go figure. I, America is nothing if not self-contradictory. In conclusion, America is a land of contrasts. A land of contrasts. As in this case, rep- case represented by several hundred interestingly costumed mice. The... The chairman is British. Yes, that was the thing I was going to bring up. Um, The song that is the theme that everyone sings is in English. I did. Here is my yikes card saying, Boo! Song in English. Now, now that is not an enormous deal in a like grand cosmic sense after all this movie is in english you want the kids to be able to understand it or anything but it is a little piece of invisible ink that says that the language of unity here is english by volume at that time english was not the most commonly spoken language in the world it was probably at that point still mandarin chinese or french english has overtaken french but it might well have been at that point that's not the true lingua franca of the world right and you know, for all that, it's probably also not inaccurate to nonetheless have the UN do English anyway, because the UN is a a proud example of countries uniting under America's yeah. opinions about how that should be done. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's not unrealistic. I just, I would have loved to see... The, the lyrics of this song are not important. No. Uh, 
we could have done with seeing everyone do it in their own language and then have Bernard outside singing quietly the lyrics that we actually understand. That would be dope. That would be a great little window in, because he, I mean, he's our eye-level character here. He's our every man about to be swept up into the adventure. And boy, is he every manny. Oh, yes. He's, he's so bland. So much so that my first line of writing about Bernard is, fuck you, Bernard. <laughs> is this when his, uh, his first contribution to this is, is to be like, no, I, I don't think she should go. Yeah, because like the chairman is actually sitting there doing a very nice position of, mm. hey, we haven't done this before, but someone should be first. I can't just turn you down on the grounds that you're a pretty lady and we don't like to let them get in danger. Yeah, like this guy was just about to, on the merits of your volunteering and the fact mm-hmm. that you can do it, you should have the job. And then Bernard pipes up and was like, ah, uh, but not too feminist. <laughs> At least he doesn't follow through with that. Yeah. Well. And, and it becomes very clear that this is, like, his attempt to be close to her because Lady Hot. He's also not too terrible about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I will award him a subverted yikes. Uh, our kidnapped little girl, Penny, is is upset on the day that the cat recalls when he explains it to our heroes because people came to the orphanage to adopt a little girl and they adopted some other little girl who was prettier <laughs> than her. And... Our Jiminy Cricket ass voice of wisdom and reason, who will tell us to always have faith, says she couldn't have been prettier than you. Yeah, it's not the right way to do it, dude. That is not the right fucking way. No. You are correct to think that your appearance is why people will choose to adopt you or not. Yeah, they must have gone. But you wrong. must be wrong about that ugly yeah. redhead. By the way, isn't there a thing where redheads are markedly less likely to be adopted? Yeah. So the idea that they pick some pretty little redhead girl instead of her is like, hang on. Yeah. And is she not? She always looked like a redhead to me. Does she not have orange hair? Nah. Yeah, it's weird. Disney brown. Yeah, I guess so. All right. We're not done being angry at this cat yet. What do you got? So I might go in on a little late, a little more later. But basically, the cat introduces what Wikipedia tells me is the central message of the film (laughs) in the form of faith. And his metaphor for faith is incredibly shitty. Faith is a bluebird that's over there. (laughs) Faith is an external thing that passes through your life and then flits away, I guess. (laughs) Faith is something that I want to tear out of a tree and eat. (laughs) Well, he's not very good at being a cat. You might even venture to say that this cat is kind of a dog. (laughs) Very nice cat animations. I'll mm-hmm. give him that. Yep. I actually thought, because this whole sequence was omitted from the story, uh, storybook, rather, uh, I actually thought that she couldn't hear the cat talk at first. And so I thought this was going to be quite, like, one of those scenes where the cat understands what he's saying, and we understand what the cat means, because cats live with humans, and when a cat comes and rubs up against you like that, you put the meaning onto it of, hi, how are you? Why are you sad? Tell me everything. Uh, but then I remembered she can just straight up talk to animals. Duh. That's a thing that's not weird in this movie. Anyway, it's not bad. It's just kind of like, huh, all right. <laughs> uh, of its time, but neither good nor bad. When we very first started rewatching the Disney animated Cannibal, I was on the lookout for the first movie where we did not see the credits first thing. Oh. And this is it. Yeah. We have pre-credits story in this one. Yeah, it's a tiny beat of it, but it is there. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's the opposite of a stinger. <laughs> <laughs> it's the bit that that opens the uh, the actual content. Uh, but before we get our opening song, mm-hmm. actual fucking prayer again. Yeah, we haven't seen that since 
Snow fucking White. Fucking Snow White. Even Pinocchio didn't pray directly to God. Yeah, no, no follow-up on that. Just, yeah. Yeah, kind of sucks. Don't miss it. Wouldn't recommend it. I mean, I'll give it a pass in 1996 for reasons, but... Uh, I would like to request that this movie please stop showing me children's underwear. Seconded. I... It's not in a gross, sleazy way. It's just, like... I want to stop seeing children's underwear. I'm sorry. It's just me. I'm a prude, I guess. I don't like it. Yeah. Enough of that. Uh, and a big yikes at the end. I think we might have the same big old final yikes. Is it about Gramps the Turtle? Yeah, it's about Gramps the Turtle. Yeah. Fuck you, Gramps. Fuck off, Gramps. <laughs> I know which generation's grandpa you are now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to clarify that one? Fucking traitor ass turtle. Yeah, we, uh, at the, uh, during the final scene when our, our local hick friends, uh, rush to help out at the boat, we both suddenly noticed the turtle was wearing a fucking Confederate soldier's hat. So fuck him. Fuck the turtle. <laughs> turtle is a slave-supporting bastard. Well, slave-owner-supporting bastard. Yeah. You all knew what I meant. What kind of slaves do turtles keep? Uh, snails, maybe? Crabs, I don't know. <laughs> Anyway. Well, no, it's not, is it? It's other fucking turtles. Oh. With, like, a different colored shell or something. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're just giving them what they want. If we go, uh, surely they'd pick a lesser species. Yeah, you're to... right. Fucking. God. God. Just see, that's, that's the shit that l- just lurks in your brain. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. I hate that we both went there. Uh-huh. But I'm glad I noticed it. That, however, is all I have here behind the yikes door. Yeah. No. It, you were doing so well, movie, but you blew it. Really nice work on your internationalism. Maybe less slavery. And you may say, look, there's barely any slavery. But have you considered no slavery? I feel like uh, any detectable percentage of slavery is above the allowable slavery limit Mm -hmm. and with that we close the yikes door next up eyelash watch eyelash watch no boys get eyelashes in this movie Mm -hmm. no matter what they drink or who they fall in love with or how stunned they are but we have an interesting subversion where we discover our villainess is wearing fake eyelashes mm-hmm. and in fact isn't drawn with any normally. That's, uh, I don't know what to make of that because she's not otherwise a, like, ugly masculine style of character. So no. I don't think this is one of those nasty, huh, woman looks like a dude jokes. Um, I guess it's probably just a vanity thing more than anything because she's severely Cruella de Vil at home, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, we have Cruella de Vil at home energy is powerful. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, especially given how she drives. That's a secret plot point that we'll get to later. Oh. Boop, 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 boop. That was Eyelash Watch. Right. And now we have a bit of a thing. Because you remember the section we talk about the animation, which we have been calling ridiculously now Swaggle Watch. <laughs> we have decided that it should be less Swaggle Watch at this point and more just shit in the animation we want to talk about because that's how we've been using it for some time. Mm-hmm. Well, it is appropriate that this would be the last Swaggle Watch because this is Milt Carl's last Disney movie. <gasps> last overall or just last as lead animator? The last one he worked on. Okay. He retired after this point and spent the rest of his time writing how-to books, mementos, training other artists, and just being a coot. Like, just, <laughs> just top-notch cootery. Cootery, oh dear. 
Have you found more evidence about our friend? <laughs> well, thank goodness we didn't tie ourselves to him too tightly in the Disney versus Carl Wars. <laughs> Can't we just accept that both men were dickheads? <laughs> I think we proposed that at the time, in fact. All right. So, remember how I said that, uh, <laughs> that, that Winnie the Pooh is the no really honest, this is the last one Disney worked on? <laughs> So this movie started production in 1962 while Walt Disney was still alive and worked on it. Oh my god, Talon, <laughs> you keep lying to us! How are we going to trust anything you say? <laughs> it's more that the Wikipedia entries are all completely incorrect about saying, this was the last one Disney worked on. <laughs> How are we going to sacrifice unto you the blue bird of fleeting faith? <laughs> or something. I think that's what this movie was about. Uh, but while working on it in 1962, Walt Disney demanded it shelved because he disliked it. Yeah, that sounds like him. In 1970, after Disney was gone, they brought it back up out of mothballs to give the young animators a B movie to work on while they were working on a big A movie. These young animators would be head up by this young up-and-coming fellow who distinguished himself on the on the Robin Hood movie, Don Bluth. Don Bluth. Somebody known for mouse, you don't say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the movie was going to get made quite a lot earlier. But the actor they brought on to play the character who was going to be rescued had to drop out when he started repeating words and making up dialogue. And they thought he was being difficult, but no, it turns out he had a massive invasive brain tumour. Ah. Which kind of cooled everyone on the project. Yeah, okay. So we, we had a little boy the first time around and he fucking died, huh? Not a boy. It was going to be an old bear up oh. in the Antarctic who was needing help from some straight from, from the rescuers. Oh, okay. This was a totally different story. Yes. In part because these are based on a book series. They rescued a whole bunch of people. Yes. Right. And the main character of the book series is Bianca. They're Miss Bianca's Adventures. Wow. The reason they scrapped the Antarctic setting is because it's too boring for our background animators. And snow is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> the xerography technology got a, what was described at the time as revolutionary upgrade. Now, listener, uh, brace yourself here. The xerographs could upgrade from producing copies in one color to managing a second color, which was, in this case, a light gray. That! Is actually pretty fucking revolutionary, yeah. yeah. I mean, color photocopying is... <laughs> that was still iffy when I went to high school in the 90s. Uh-huh. The xerographs were capable of now producing grey lines, which were used in this movie to do coloured lines. They would xerograph that softer colour and then draw over it again on the cell in a colour. Oh, right. Yeah, we had... Um... Our albatross yeah. had a, a lot of soft lines on the outside. I didn't even notice until you're making me think about it backwards. Yeah. And, ah. and, and that's because the xerographs were like, you know, pushed to the nines. And this young up-and-comer Don Bluth said, what if? <laughs> the albatross was originally going to be a pigeon because the books is a pigeon. They picked an albatross because while taking off and landing, albatrosses look stupid. They sure do. Especially if you put them in boots. You mentioned Mil that Medusa feels like we have Cruella DeVille at home. Boy, howdy. I mean, 100%, right? This movie was almost a sequel to 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> a sequel? Yes, she almost was actually Cruella DeVille. Wait, a sequel without any of the heroes? Yeah. A sequel by way of villain reuse? That's amazing! Yeah. Um, but... 
When they decided they weren't going to do that, they had to remodel this character. Yeah, a little bit. So mm. they just put her in a fat suit, basically, right? So she was given to be completely animated by one man, Milt Carl, who modeled her on his wife. Yikes. Who was also Walt Disney's wife's niece, Phyllis Bounds. Hang on. Is this say No, I'm thinking of Sterling Holloway. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, is this the same, like, renownedly uh, uh, <laughs> non-into uh, wifiness no. that that was Sterling Holloway? No. But, but here's, here's the kicker, because the Wikipedia page notes that it was based on his wife, who he did not particularly like. <laughs> you don't say. So, yeah, Medusa is just a complex bundle uh, of, oh no, over uh, there. Oh, well. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, this is this is Milk Carl's final film. He wanted to go out on a high note, which apparently is mocking his wife in effigy. Melissa Cruella Deville. <laughs> Cruella Dev. <laughs> oh my god! You noticed your lad muskrat? Uh, yeah, in fact, I, yeah, in fact, I have a note that just says, oh, that's who Luke is. Because <laughs> I spotted Pat Buttram's name in the opening credits. Yep. I just couldn't remember which character that was. Weirdly, one of the most helpful and useful characters in this very weird world. Yeah, booze is magic, so this uh-huh. guy is just holding MacGuffin power. But the lady muskrat that's his... Cousin? Wife? Sister? I'm not sure. I mean, they're kind of southern stereotypes, so any of the above? Yeah, just the, the, the other muskrat uh, is voiced by a lady by the name of Jeanette Nolan. Now, that's a name that's not going to mean anything to anyone unless you are a hardcore fan of movie trivia or B-movie stuff. Let me interject here before you tell us. But uh, I had the distinct impression that she was doing an accent as opposed to uh, Butt Patrum. Uh... <laughs> it just did not sound natural to me. Yeah. Am I about to make a fool of myself? No, you are spot on. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Jeanette Nolan has a bunch of roles. Um, she kept acting all the way through until the way until the day she died. She also, however, appears multiple times in Columbo. Oh. Da, da, da. But the reason I bring up the fact that like she's important, in the original movie Psycho, she was the uncredited voice of Norma Bates. Because crediting her would have put information in the front of the movie that they didn't want to give away. Ah, that is the shittest reason to not credit someone. Oh, absolutely. It's terrible. Boo. 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 Geniuses are assholes. She also shows up in a movie called Goliath Awaits, which, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Fo- Fox has heard me talk about this movie. Have I? Yes. I was just going to joke that it sounds like a gargoyles porno. No, no, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, <clears throat> it's not a gargoyles uh, porno. <laughs> Goliath Awaits. I, no, <laughs> don't say. Goliath Awaits is an amazing 1980s schlock TV movie. With the premise that during World War II, Nazis shot down an ocean liner full of American, French, and uh, British passengers that sunk to the bottom of the ocean, but that sealed so that they could live down there on the bottom of the ocean and form their own society. Yeah. Um, And and it's three hours long. It's all on YouTube. There are no copyright strikes because- 
movie. Nobody has gone, well, I, I guess we might profit off this somehow. <laughs> so this is, like, bad, but only in the most fun way possible. And good, but only in the schlockiest way possible. Oh yeah, I'm going to watch it one day. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch all of Goliath Rising. I kind of want to see that. <laughs> if nothing else, that sounds like a premise worth ripping off for, a, a like, a cheeseball comic book character or something. Mm-hmm. And now... While I'm talking about voice actors, and while I'm talking about people not getting proper credit... Oh, did... did... is this another fucking child who has three different voice actors, only one of whom is credited? No, no, the voice actress... Okay. Oh, the vo- you want to talk about the voice actress for the child? Not really, she's terrible. The voice actress for the child is a little girl called Michelle Stacy, who is very interesting because she is a child actor who acted as a child, stopped dropped out and now you can't find anything about her good honor she has her money she has her royalties she is not interested no thank you please delete my wikipedia page as i am not notable (laughs) but get out of there good job but as far as her roles as a child actor she's in this this is probably one of her weaker roles because she was also in a movie called demon seed which is about a guy automating his house to the point where he falls in love one. with his wife. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. The very last moment of that movie is the uh, a mechanized pod opening up in the house and a little girl that is now speaking with the voice of the computer says, I'm alive. That's her. Ugh. That that's 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 that actor. Uh-huh. Uh but also she was in a movie called Airplane. She's in Airplane. She's in Airplane. How old is she at that point? It's like 14 and she's a little girl who's who who a little boy tries to sweetly flirt with and her response is incredibly vulgar it's great it's a good joke but no the voice actor i was thinking of who didn't get credit up to this point has the amazing name of john james jimmy mcdonald john james jimmy mcdonald (laughs) john james jimmy mcdonald is one of the most prolific disney performers who never got credited is he an animal noise guy? He is an animal noise guy. Right. He is a backup Mickey. Oh. There are numerous times where he was Mickey because Walt's voice was shot from all the cigarettes. I'm sure. What could have made Walt Disney's voice unserviceable for a Mickey Mouse performance? We may never know. And guess who got the credit? He's <laughs> a shit, Walt. John James Jimmy McDonald is the voice of the dragonfly. He's also the... Is he the alligators? He, he is in so much stuff. He's the voice of Dopey. Dopey has a voice. Yeah, Dopey hiccups, yawns, and sneezes. Oh, yeah, right. He just makes bodily noises. Yep. Yeah, and if you think through all of the movies, he he his <laughs> Wikipedia page is this list of constant roles all the way through, from Snow White to... This, and I think this is his last one, um, but he, he was in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, he's in Mary Poppins, he's so many different roles, it's just all he is is sounds and voice, and they don't credit him. They don't credit him as sound effects, and they don't credit him as a voice actor. I imagine they didn't have to, because it's not technically a speaking part, if it just vocalizes and doesn't speak, right? Yeah. Oh, that's nasty. Credit your actors, fucking Walt. Credit them and then pay them. Yeah. Credit them again, just to be sure. Also, credit your three D animators nowadays. Credit pay everyone. Them. Pay them too. Can we just agree that people should get credit and compensation for their work at all times? Period. Uh huh. Oh, we've and... solved it, Talon. Oh, and uh, Piglet is the owl. 
<laughs> no, what? The voice of Piglet is the voice of the owl. I knew he'd done something else. The strangely disproportionate owl. I definitely was. There was a tiny owl and a tiny rabbit. Or a huge pet. No, because the we saw them next to the mice, and they were more or less mice-sized. They all fit in a petrol can. If anything, they were kind of small muskrats. But yeah, you can't fit an owl and a rabbit in a petrol can. I don't accept it. It depends on how finely you mince them. Stop it. That's not okay. <laughs> I... The only one who gets minced is Grandpa Confederacy Turtle. That is almost all I have for animation and making. Just the final note of, wow, that's really good water. <laughs> I've got a few more animation and making notes. Please, go for it. Uh, first of all, this is super duper extra strength sketchy. Wowie. Yeah. Like, some of the sequences, usually close-ups on Penny's face, have have cleaner lines. But, like, the villains in particular, wow. Oh, man, yeah. So scribbly. Yeah, they're, they're, and this movie took 15 years to make. 15 years! The earliest Ooh. versions of this movie were being made without xerography. I wonder if that's a factor, though. Because if you're doing your sketches with the understanding that, of course, someone is going to paint lines, yeah. then you probably don't clean them up as much. Whereas I assume for the xerography era, uh, they, they turned in pretty clean sketches and, like, erased most of their straight lines. And One stuff. hopes. Like, the other ones we've seen were not this sketchy for the most part. Like, bits and pieces depends where you catch them in the film, but this was very rough all the way through. You're up as old assholes. So I thought, anyway. Ah, oh, let's not be mean. Um, I did note at the beginning that was another movie with lots of silence, but it turns out that was just related to the first act, which was pretty tame. Like, yeah. It, it's a very slow-moving first act. I, I feel like they could have done away with it quicker. Yeah, in fact, it's kind of weird to think back on it and go, well, how much stuff happened in the first act? And it's like, oh, well, barely anything. Yeah, like, very little. And... We should have been spending that time getting to know and like our two leads. Yeah, there's a diversion to the zoo that serves very little purpose, but lots yeah. of good chase fall run animation. But like, neither of them do a whole lot of personality during that bit, which is weird to me. Really weird. And maybe because they have fairly down key personalities to begin with. Like, uh, Bianca may have a fancy accent and clearly be the mouse that we're supposed to want to fuck, but... <laughs> Which, I, look, I'm not wrong. You're they not start wrong. the sequence by having every mouse in the UN be like, oh, she's the one I want to fuck. <laughs> <clears throat> but, uh, and, and you know, she has like a, a, a daring, risk-taking personality kind of thing, but not as that character would be expressed if you did that archetype now, right? Like, her, her dangerous personality is just, you know, laughing a bit and doing the thing anyway, or making a joke about running red lights, or... Yeah. Like... She's not actually that full on, and Bernard is timid, but he's so not good at being timid that they have to give him the superstition trait to remind us that he's supposed to be timid. I just love the idea of her reckless driving being tied to like, oh yes, Hungarians, you know, put it in H! (laughs) (laughs) Who knows, maybe there's a stereotype, I don't know. I assume it was just because they wanted to do a heroine who was a bit fucking different for once. And she she feels that while at the same time being so unremarkable on on a scale of cartoon personalities overall. Like, these two are pretty much just, you know, normal movie characters. They're barely cartoon characters, as it were. Which isn't really a complaint, it's just odd. It's just odd that they're both pretty down-to-earth characters. Yeah, they're also adults. Yeah. It's true. For a movie that's focused on the needs of a child, it is interesting that the people who are mostly doing stuff are adults. 
I think I might still be in the era of movies where, um, well, where teenagers didn't happen much still. Like, I, 80s and 90s media is very focused on teenagers because a teenager is the coolest thing in the fucking world when you're nine years old. Um, but I, you know, old movies don't have that understanding yet. Also, there were laws preventing direct advertising, remember? Yeah, but so what? You can still have kids in the movies. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's broadly understood that teenagers didn't exist until the 60s, so, I, it, you know, safe media like Disney family movies probably isn't going to acknowledge them for a little while longer. No. I mean, I can think for certain of when I know we have teenagers. I mean, no, that's not fair. A bunch of Disney characters have been teenagers, they just haven't been acknowledged as such. Like, Yeah, like... <laughs> like Aurora is 16, she says so. Yeah, it's it's a whole point, except at that point it's like, yep, time to get married. Like, what, what, hang on, hold, yeah, hold up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. There's no liminal stage between being an adult and being a child. Ha, <laughs> huh, you're, you're not a little girl anymore. You clearly have the ambition to get married immediately. Don't say any more sentences. <laughs> yeah. We don't need the voice actress to show up for the rest of the movie. <laughs> Speaking of voices in this movie, the songs are chloroform. Yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't remember that there were songs in this movie. I'm sorry if anybody loves them and they were hoping to hear them on the kazoo at the beginning of this episode, but I, I got nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're at all curious, the voice behind the songs is a woman who also performed the song to know him is to love him so it's that particular quality of dreary pop i don't know that i know that song well that's good for you (laughs) okay uh i mean i know this is i know this is taking a long time on the animation but like really weirdly this movie (laughs) has a lot of stuff about the animation and the direction like did you notice how the actual sequence down in the blowhole and everything like that scene is Tense, ramping into tense, ramping into tense, without ever actually, like, doing the bullshit reset that they do in a lot of the other ones, where it's like, oh, we're just going to repeat a frame. So every single sequence of that got more tense. They're getting better at making movies. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, once again, I think we've seen some pretty good tension in earlier ones. It's just been very hot and cold over the arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, especially compared to the early parts of the film, we, we've got some real tension later on. Uh, but we're still talking about animation, uh, so I'm just gonna say, uh, every animal is a dog. Every fucking animal is a dog. I mean, not really. Our little swamp friends and whatnot are not dogs, but you know who is dogs? The alligators! Yep. Ah, I love it! I'm gonna keep going back to them, they're so good. Yep. I didn't realize, uh... I I mentioned earlier, I'm more familiar with the sequel than this one. I didn't realize where Joanna came from. Yeah! She is a direct callback to these two assholes. I I also like, uh, as far as the every animal is a dog stakes, if you wander up to a cage with a lion in it, that lion will not roar at you. Lions do not care. You know what animal will make noise the second you get near its territory in the middle of the night? A baboon. Well, I was thinking of a dog. Oh, I was thinking of a zoo animal. <laughs> but the point is, the lion that we don't even see <laughs> is a dog! <laughs> I like that. We've already discussed how our cat is a dog. But mostly it's just the alligators and their lovely so dogs. Good. They're so shit. I love them. They're horrible. Horrible garbage babies. <laughs> they had, hands down, the best animation in this film. Yeah. Somebody loved rolling those fat lizard bodies around the stage and just glorying in the big floppy alligator gullet. Uh, 
The name you want for that, by the way, is Ollie Johnston. Oh, it was Ollie Johnston. Yeah, I remember his name. Yeah, one of one of He's the nine one of the old, old men. men. Yeah. yeah. Well, good work, him. Love those two. Great fun. <laughs> uh, and I will cap it off with one swaggle I noticed. Did you catch any? I caught one at the airport where it was not done for, you know, dramatic energy or showing off how relaxed a character was. It's Bernard nervously talking as he turns his head. Ooh, that's a good one. I hadn't noticed that. But also his face is... His face is small. It's not a big 3D object like Tigger's monster jaw or Shere Khan's head. So it's a mu- it's a baby swaggle. Yeah, that's fair. And, and our other swaggles were human that I spotted. Uh, I, I don't know if one escaped me. Early on, I think Medusa might have done one while she was on the phone. And if Milk Carl was her supervising animator, then I bet it probably was. But I noticed it too late and I wasn't about to ask you to rewind. But we definitely got one definitive snaggle out of swaggle out of Snoops as yes. well. Boy, he's a nothing of a character. The man was a teeter toy. Just about right. Also, he was based on, uh, he was actually based on one of the animators. They would get him to do stuff around the room. And they didn't, and he didn't realize that they were using him as the model. Oh no, that's shitty. Yeah, and like he then later went on the record, like it's a dream to be animated in a Disney movie, but it doesn't change the fact that they appear to have drawn him as a big fat loser. It's a dream to be paid to be animated in a Disney movie. That's that true. I bet he didn't get you know mocap acting credit. Well, what do we call that in the old days? Modeling, I guess. All right, but that's that is the end of my notes for. Voice and quality and animation and all of those technical things that we're rapidly folding into one segment. Yeah, which I think that segment's going to get smaller and smaller. <laughs> like when we get to the Disney Renaissance and it's just like, oh no, there's just really good animation in this. It's going to be, hey, here are three or four things that we freaking love. The animation does become boringly fantastic pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> hey, That's just how it is. We're not out of the Xerox woods yet. Yeah, but I, I do feel like the Xerox woods give these more personality Yeah. than the... Like, I know that's kind of a hack thing to say, like, you know, oh, the, the record pops give it so much more warmth. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I do genuinely think you're right. Back when I started this whole project, I did have it in my head that the movies with the sketchy lines and the scrabbly bits in the middle, they must have been the earliest movies because they were, as it were, getting it wrong. But the further, now that now that we're really in the neck of the xerography period, and we're seeing so many of these movies, and we're seeing how much the animators are doing stuff they love. The, the sequences of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, like the hi-ho along the walkway, is pompous almost. It's, it's got that weight and drop and weight and drop and that's like impressive in its own way but there's none of the flexibility none of the speed and none of the sense of sharpness that this has through those sketchy lines it's it's really interesting watching the way that the less technically amazing (laughs) gives way to the more creatively amazing yeah yeah i think that's fair i think that's why i always still have this soft spot for the the xerography era yeah it's got its charm especially if you grew up with it going into this period i did say something to the effect of like this is a good this looks like it's a good collection and like even though that good collection has featured winnie the pooh (laughs) look there have been ups and downs yeah but but not in nottingham yeah exactly Uh, yeah Alright, I'm gonna stop now.
And now onto the big message of the movie or the big thing I wanted to talk about. Right, I got no notes about this, so I guess I'll try and add what I can as we go. <sighs> okay, so the movie ostensibly claims it is about faith. The movie pulls over and parks and explains to you faith with a freaking coda and a <laughs> rhyme. It really does, yeah. And that coda and rhyme have nothing to do with the rest of the movie. This movie is entirely about people cooperating to do good. It really is like this beautiful positive message of people working together, trusting one another, trying to help one another, and no one at any point goes, well, there's literally nothing I can do. I will I will have faith in something I'll have faith in something external. Yeah, it like if you had asked me if this film had a theme prior to this watch through, that's exactly what I would have said the theme was. I I would have said it's about coming together to do things that you can't do on your own. I mean, even Penny, who I got to say in the books is as useless as they imply she would be if she just sat around having faith and let the mice do the work. But no, she has really solid ideas. She's thought about this. Yep. She attempts escape multiple times. She also reaches out for rescue. And once she has reached out for rescue, she still attempts escape. That that is kind of the opposite of faith. Uh Uh-huh. She did not just put the message out there and go, all right, I've done my bit. Now it's time for you to fulfill that world. Mm -hmm. You have Bernard and Bianca both rescue one another. It's not, like, I was fully expecting, oh no, it's going to be the plain talking janitor man, like, solves a problem because he knows how to use a bucket or something and she would never think (laughs) of it. And, like, he's going to be shown as having this dominance in that kind of, you know, that particular kind of working class space. But no, he just, there are multiple points where he puts himself in danger to rescue her. And there's multiple points where she does the exact same. She runs into a fight with the alligators to save him. She drags him out by his leg. I was amazed. Yeah, and that's great. They help each other. I love it. I'm a little disappointed that his janitor angle didn't come up, really. Yeah. Like, I would have liked for there to be some just, you know, shitty janitor's closet type, uh, type moments. Where it's like, you know, who would know how to use... Who would know how to fix the gauge on a boiler? No one does that. Um, Also, when it comes to the villain, they do two really excellent things. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is they show her as being tangibly unreasonable. She has enormous wealth, thanks to Penny. Her scheme has, on all fronts, succeeded. Yes, all the other treasure she's pulling up. She has piles of gems. She is rich beyond the dreams of avarice. But... She is focused on one thing. So even getting good enough isn't good enough. And that means that you have this character who's like wonderfully demonstrating this idea that it's not even the wanting that's bad. It's the wanting in a way that... Like, she's not responding to incentives. She's not a poor woman who's like, well, I need money. This is the thing I'm going to do for money. No, she's not a sympathetic character no, at all. She, she 100% is fixated on this and wants to coerce the world into giving it to her. They show that it is morally wrong to threaten a child. She compares what she is doing to parenting. She talks about the way to make the child do things. And then in a sequence, which is basically a torture shot, she threatens the child with taking away the teddy bear forever. There is no material threat of violence here, aside from like the actual trauma and violence of that. But when they were like, okay, how do we make this woman a monster? How do we make it very clear that, that we have to go down there? Or we have to get the diamond because this woman is 
terrible and she will do something terrible if we don't. The actual threat of losing a teddy bear is her Rubicon moment. That is the, you know, the moment where the villain has truly transcended all horror. And like, that's really, really good. She doesn't mm. hit her. She doesn't, they don't show actual violence. The, the, the threat that gets involved in, no, I say actual violence, it doesn't show physical, brutal violence. It's none of that. It is literally the threatening of a child, which this movie goes, no, don't threaten kids. It is, now that you mention it, I, this is stuff that, that definitely bounced off of me, because um, I don't have the history of parenting that you do. Um, but you you bring up a really good point in that like she is not wrong when she says that she understands the child she meets her on her own terms in order to threaten her. Yeah. And it's kind of worse that the threat is a parenting technique that's presented as valid in a lot of other situations. So, yeah, that's... Now that you mention it, mm -hmm. that's really kind of refreshing. She also positions herself as Aunt Medusa, not I'll be your mum. She's not being... Manip she, she wants to be manipulative, but she isn't willing to extend that extra barrier, so it, that extra level of vulnerability of saying, okay, I'll be your mother and you should do what you want for mummy. She's not manipulative no, in that way. No, she's not a manipulative. She is threatening. And I think that that's a really interesting point of contrast with other characters we'll talk about in another time. But it it is a much more interesting kind of villain than we started with way back in Snow White. It's weird that they play her as being manipulative at a couple of points and like, yeah. really? Who do you think you're fooling? Like when she's like, Oh, you know, who would want to adopt you? And it just, it seems really odd as a sequence, because this is clearly not the character we have here. She's just cruel. Why does the child fall for it? It doesn't really check out. She turns to a fucking gun. Yeah, she, I, I think the movie is very clear about what kind of villain she is, and I think everyone around her knows that. So the fact that they have her try to do this bit, and it's not treated as like, what is she trying now? This is weird. Uh, that That doesn't really check out. I wish they hadn't done that part. I also wish they hadn't explained the diamond thing as you did by, of course, just going, she's crazy. She's absolutely insane. Yeah. Because she's not really. She's just a selfish fucking bitch. Yeah. She doesn't care about the people she's hurting. Yeah. And she is willing to make people do that. It, that that's pretty much it. Yeah. She has violence as a tool and she has no respect for the people around her. So this is what you get. Yeah. Yep. But that's all I have for my big grand thesis moment. All right. Well, that's cool, because I'm down to whatever land. What? What, wait, what are we down to? Are we not down to whatever land? Indeed, we are down to... Whatever land! Oh. There you go, I said it properly. Oh, you gotta love the sparkles. I took a lot of work getting those installed. <laughs> Hold on, I gotta rev them up a bit. <laughs> they base way too much adoption talk about appearances. Like, everyone who talks about adoption mentions a pretty little girl. Pretty little girl. Stop it! Fuck off! That's Stop making adoption children works. feel like love depends on attractiveness. That's so fucking weird. <sighs> and, like, this is a really little girl, too. She's not old enough to be worried about whether or not people find her attractive. Yeah. Way, way to kick the anxieties in early, Disney. Mm, I hate it. Don't spray perfume around others! Yeah. Don't ever do that! Yeah. <laughs> Listener, if you need this explained to you, other people have tastes and senses that may or may not be much more acute than yours. And fucking allergies. 
And if I have to catch another bus ride with someone's grandma who is wearing like six gallons of Giorgio, I'm gonna cry. Didn't you bring anyone big with you? The police? <laughs> Don't talk to cops, Penny. Don't talk to cops. Especially not as a foster home kid. <laughs> Maybe that was less of a thing in the 70s. Probably not, though. Uh, alright then. Mice on a step elevator. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Mice on a step escalator is terrifying. Oh god, yeah. This is how you turn this into a horror movie set. <laughs> I, I caught my breath when he slid the suitcases onto that step like, Oh, Jesus! <laughs> This is how they die in the opening ten minutes. You see the you see the escalators go up a few moments later, holding the same shot. Escalators go up again with a red smear along them. Whoa. Little Spanish flea place. <laughs> that made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's not like I expected that it would happen. It's just oh god, I'm imagining real mice on one of those escalators now. And ah no, fuck bats, I guess. Yeah, bats are monsters. What the hell? How is there an owl? That is friendly with the the <laughs> rodents and rabbits and fucking moles of the swamp. But uh, these bats, man, these bats are inhuman monsters with glowing red eyes and actually kind of cool horror animation, I gotta say. Yeah. Like, it was some scary beasties. Penny yoinks her teddy bear out of a cut. Like, th oh, th like, this is this is film so, cut. Yeah, this is so hard to explain in an audio <laughs> medium. But in the sequence where the where the where Nero and Brutus drop Penny off in the house, there is a shot where uh, they are menacing Smopes, Smopes, whatever. Uh, they're menacing him, and one of them has the bear in his mouth. And then the next shot is Penny reaching forward and pulling the bear back into her arms. And the place the bear was on screen was where it had been in the cut. <laughs> it's like she reaches through fucking time. I don't know about the where it had been in the cut, but uh, it's definitely a a uh, continuity error. She's There's a witch. no way she's supposed to have taken the bear back from the alligator. <laughs> Very clearly established that she can't do that. The healing power and clean fuel source that is immensely illegal alcohol. <laughs> yeah, moonshine is the uh, the magic. Uh, it's a magic fucking wand in this movie. Three times. It is used to revive characters. Uh, to to well, borderline harm a character, but uh, also as an engine fuel. And there, there are three plot points in this movie that, if not for the moonshine, the entire story changes. <laughs> I mean, it's three three rule of threes, right? Yep. What's the third one, though? Uh, Bernard the first time, the dragonfly the second oh. time, and the uh, engine the third time. Look, I'll give you the dragon and the dragonfly and the engine. I won't give you Bernard. Okay. He's being uh, hampered by the alcohol, if anything. It stops him from talking cleanly. So, this movie was involved in the first major controversy of the home video market, where Disney re-bought three and a half million dollars worth of the VHS recordings and destroyed them. Doesn't this belong in the capitalism section? No, because this is because there were two non-consecutive frames with a titty in them. Whoa! Yep. Where did they put tits into this movie? In the sequence where the albatross is flying out through the city in the background there's a pair of tits on the wall. Or through a window. I don't wow. know. I, it, the, the, the screenshots of it I've seen are blurry and small. It could be a poster. It could be a window. I don't care. So somebody got fired for that. Oh, almost certainly. Especially because they're non-consecutive frames. 
Yeah. Hmm. Like, why does that happen? Oh, no, it, it, there's no way it would be. It's a drawing, Talon. There's no way it happens unless it's on purpose. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Whether or not they're consecutive frames has nothing to do with the fact that somebody had to proactively add titties. Sorry, let me clarify. I thought that the non-consecutive frames indicated someone was trying to sneak them. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. You'd have to. It's a Disney movie. You'd have to sneak them. Yep. So yeah, they rebought $3.4 million worth of VHS tapes to destroy them and then replaced them. Amazing. So if you got one of the tainted ones, they'd buy it off you and then give you another one back. I bet they would. Wouldn't you hold out though? <laughs> I'm sure people did. Well, I'm absolutely certain that there are copies of that on eBay right now for very large sums of money. Probably. For people who want to see a 1977 Disney titty. For one frame. Mmm. And then another frame. <laughs> Some later point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> boy, oh boy. <laughs> And uh, so that's my whatever land, but but we have a special guest whatever landing. Oh. Uh, I contacted my friend Nixie, who is a plane and gun expert, and I showed her some stuff from this movie. And she wants you to know that the two-prop helicopter in the opening is a fucked up looking version of the CH-46 Piaseki Vertol, which is a terminal for this, which is a template for the CH-47 Chinook. The rotors have three blades, not two, and the haunch wings don't look like that because they're less for aerial stabilization and they're actually just to hold two big fuel tanks. I'm going to read that with a nerd voice. <laughs> I don't want to impersonate Nixie's voice. <laughs> is the Chinook also not an army helicopter? Yes, the Chinook is a military helicopter. It is. Okay, so it's not, it's uh, kind of weird that it's there. Uh, the, the Yes, there was, there was no civilian version of this aircraft ever. Um, but yeah, the, the Chinook is, it, it's... When you visualize military transport helicopter with two rotors on it, yeah, it's yeah. basically just like a big box with a bubble <laughs> on each end. I mean, to be fair, when I visualize a military transport helicopter, it's come from MASH. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a bit different. I don't get me wrong, this is this is 20 years after MASH would have been, so... But yeah. these are the ones that have, like, two arms going out from the middle, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's a Chinook. Uh, just, uh, just, 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 uh, last minute. Um, hey, oh, hello. sorry. Hello, Fox. We're getting uh, new information. Uh, Hi, I'm time traveling from the end of the edit, where it turns out that Nixie wanted me to clarify that, in fact, there is a civilian model of that plane which precedes the CH-46. It's oh. the BV-10711. Oh, well, that would make more sense to be in this civilian environment. Yeah, and neither Fox nor I know dick nothing about this, but I don't want to misrepresent my friend. <laughs> no, that's, that's justified. This cannot stand. Right. And, uh, you know, thank you for coming back to give me this important message. Now get your ass to Mars. And uh, according to her, the gun is just a fucked up looking weird gun. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it! That might have been on purpose too. Like, we're, we're starting to hit the era where you might have to be slightly fucking cautious about how much you sell guns to children in America. Megatron hasn't <laughs> happened for another four years. <laughs> yeah, but we're close is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, how many children need to die for it, really? And it is also, like, I think it's the first Disney villain with a gun. Like, we saw guns in Wind in the Willows, but, like, it's not- This is the first time I remember the villain going, and now, a gun. Well, Hook's got a pistol. Okay, yeah, good point, good point. And he did use it to kill a man. <laughs> I maintain that that was for comic effect. His, he's implied to have shot his instrument. Yep, but I'm still a Hook truther. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Look, um, we know he'd kill Rufio if he got the chance. I can't kill Rufio. He's Dante Basco. Oh my god, that's Zuko. 
We're not going anywhere with this bit. I just love Zuko. Yep. <clears throat> Turns out the Venn diagram of who Fox's favorite character in any given thing is is a flat circle labeled traumatized prince. <laughs> 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 Guess I've got a type! <laughs> just in case anyone's curious, no, I'm not a prince. Death to kings. <laughs> Death to kings. Trauma to princes. <laughs> My friends are largely anti-king and pro-princess. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you got anything else in that last flashcard there, Fox? Well, my last flashcard is exactly what you might have thought my last flashcard would be based on the first bit of this broadcast. <laughs> do, do you ever think Rescue Rangers was just gonna be a Rescuers series at first? Yes! It was! <laughs> it actually was confirmed? Yes! Oh, I'm delighted! One of the voices in this... And one of the, the the original character they were going to rescue is a character called Harvey the Bear, who was the last new Disney series while Disney was alive for film and theatrical shorts. And they were going to rescue Harvey the Bear in the Antarctic, and it was going to feature Chip and Dale, Chip's original voices in this. Wait, it, hang on. So, yes, Rescue Rangers was going to be a Rescuers cartoon, but also Chip and Dale was still going to be in it? Yes. This is so cute. Yeah. I, I choose to believe the rescuers do exist in that world then. I like the idea, because I've seen chipmunks and I've seen mice, I like the idea that Chip chipmunks and Dale in this bigger. would just be like twice the size of Bianca. <laughs> you remember that there's a mouse in Rescue Rangers, right? There's a couple. I, you know, yes, I know ostensibly there are mice, but, you know. <laughs> are you, you gadget denialist? No, I'm not You're denial- going to get us in some hot water with Disney fans, Talon. No. Because no. there's a third part of the Robin Hood Princess Sally uh, <laughs> axis here. Yeah, it's the people who know her surname was Hackwrench. <laughs> oh, come on. That, that's not that rare a thing to know. <laughs> Everybody knows that. <laughs> so, with that said, let's get away from the topic of furry fetishes as quickly as possible by instead diving into... <coughs> Capitalism! Well, okay, but this leads into capitalism because I'm curious as to whether or not the reason they didn't is because the sequel didn't do that well. Because I don't know if the timing works out with that for Rescue Rangers. They're both 80s, but I don't know when Rescue Rangers was, was you know, finishing up development stage. The Chippendale involvement in this is the thing that made Disney go, nah, it's a stupid idea, put it on the shelf. <laughs> So 1962, Fuck that guy. the Rescue Rangers had their genesis back in the 60s. <laughs> no, I mean why they bailed the rescuers out of Rescue Rangers. No, oh, yeah, no no strong idea yet, but I imagine that'll come up when we watch The Rescuers Down Under. Might do. So, box office, you want to make some guesses? Um, this really is rough as guts. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's cheaper. And we did coast five million last episode. And it's the same year as Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to say it's around the five mil mark as well for making. Uh, I don't know. They've probably paid less for animation and more for songs. So the budget for this one was seven million. Seven million. Wow. This does not look two million dollars better than uh, than Robin Hood. No, not better than Robin Hood. Better than Winnie the Pooh. Absolutely. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh looked fine. It wasn't interesting at any point. The riverboat with the reflections in the water, that was cool. It's true. I mean, this definitely had a cinematic feel compared to Winnie the Pooh, which felt like it was TV. 
And also now I think about it, the the opening credits are literally over painted stills that it zooms in on. Yeah, there's a lot of painted stills. There's also painted stills during several of the song numbers. Uh-huh, yeah. And the the paint colour matching between scenes is really wildly off a lot of the time, and the xerography is more evident here than anything we watched previously. Even more so than the Aristocats. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I'm surprised to find it was that expensive given how rough it is. What's your return expectation? If it cost you seven million to make? <laughs> um, I don't think it was a failure by any stretch, but I think it might have been a bit disappointing, especially if they factored in that buyback. <laughs> but they probably didn't because that wouldn't have happened till home release. What if I told you that 1977 is also the year Star Wars came out? Oh no! <laughs> okay, either that floated all boats or this tanked. It made forty-eight million in gross domestic rentals. Oh fuck me! <laughs> so, so Star Wars just made people go to the cinema in general. In France, this made people go to the cinema, and while they were there, they checked out Star Wars. <laughs> the rescuers outperformed Star Wars in France. Shit! Wow. How cool is that? That's kind of cool. I mean, I like me some Star Wars. The critics, on the other hand, were split. Yeah, that's that's about what I expect. Like, this doesn't feel Disney the way that, that you know, the big beloved classic ones did. So, for example, Variety magazine, in a positive review, wrote that the film was the best work by Disney animators in many years, restoring the craft to its former glories. In addition, <laughs> it has a more adventurous approach to colour and background stylization than previous Disney efforts have displayed, with a delicate pastel palette used to a wide-ranging effect. Gene Siskel, in a negative review, said, To see any Disney animated film these days is to compare it with Disney classics released 30 or 40 years ago. Judged against Pinocchio, for example, The Rescuers is lightweight indeed. Its themes are forgettable. It's mostly an adventure story. I mean... That's not factually inaccurate. <laughs> God, he's a grumpy bum. <laughs> imagine, imagine pining for Pinocchio. I guess he just likes really heavy-handed morality that doesn't follow through with a reasoned reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he likes really heavy-handed morality and possibly feeling bad, <laughs> what's next? <laughs> Hang on, what are you? What are you leading up to? Uh, what haven't we seen yet? We're out of the 70s. This is the last Disney movie of the 70s. Then have we indeed moved on to Fox and the Hound? The Fox and the Hound. Well, that's not about morality. I may have been misinformed about what the Fox and the Hound is about. Oh, God, no. The Wow. Um, should I try and summarize it now? I don't think I should. I think I should just let you enjoy the magic for yourself in real time. The magic of Disney. The magic of Disney. They're all dead now. This, by the way, marks the halfway point through this season, which means this season has featured The Rescuers and Robin Hood, and it's going to feature The Great Mouse Detective and The Black Cauldron. It's pretty good looking. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, I have never disliked this era of Disney. Some of them better than others, for sure, but like, as far as consistently entertaining goes, this has had the most hits in it so far. I'm going to like the Renaissance better, but I mean, that's because the Renaissance was for me, specifically. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. Hey, theater kid and animation nerd <laughs> of the 80s through the 90s. Don't forget just 
fully blossoming into a teenager and losing my religious faith at the time. Oh, God, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, see you next episode, people. <laughs> Uh, we, we need to keep going for another minute. We need to keep going for another... Are we at 68 minutes? Well, we're at one hour 30, which is 13. No, it's not. It's 90. <laughs> uh, good enough. That'll uh, do. Don't be silly, darling. <laughs> Please, you're the Bernard. <laughs> That's rude. I am adventurous and bold. <laughs> okay, yes. And also, you're the one who goes and gets the ladder. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs>